Good morning, uh, church. Good morning, Christ City. Uh, hey, good to see you. Listen, I haven't seen some of you all since Friday when you were singing it up at the karaoke night. Uh, look, hey, I, there may be some videos floating around. Not me. Wasn't me. Didn't do it. I sing better than that and rap even better. I'm just going to let y'all know. But uh, thanks for everybody uh, for coming out. I've, I've, I, uh, I feel like I know my congregation a bit better after that situation. <laughs> On Friday night. Hey, listen, I want to tell you something. Um, for as long as I remember, I have always been intrigued by the histories and the stories of places. Stories uh, kind of about a place, the ways that those stories uh, inform kind of the contemporary expressions of that place. Because stories, they, they, we've mentioned at different points before, stories have a shaping effect on people and they have a shaping effect on places. Uh, uh, and, and that truth, that, that, that reality has always fascinated me. Again, I come from a family of storytellers and a family with a great deal of stories of their own and just seeing how those have shaped us and shaped the places that we've called home. Now, as I follow Jesus, this, this natural disposition that I have, this curious inclination about histories and stories, it became infused with this spiritual truth that God is always at work in the world. Okay, And that meant that God was working in a place and that God was always working among a people, including a people's past and a people's past history. And somehow that activity of God was moving a place and a people uh, towards a future that God that had a godly destination, a future that God was working us all towards. And I'm intrigued into the ways also by how the enemy is also at work in a people and in a place, working through stories, histories of a, of a people in a place and, their, uh, and the ways that the enemy is frustrating God's kingdom movement efforts. Histories aren't just heroic tales of triumph, but because uh, of God's adversary, histories, all histories, honest ones anyway, are tragic tales as well. They, they, they note the ways that a people and a place become the locations of oppression as well as flourishing. Histories and stories, they, they shape a place, and they have the power to shape a people that call that place home. You follow me? Two quick stories to illustrate the point. Uh, the first one I want to tell you is about Martilla Minor. Anybody know that same sound familiar? You guys, yeah? Immediately, you've looked behind me at the two. Uh, she's, she's looking over us now. Minor uh, was an educator and an abolitionist. Uh, in the middle years of the 1800s. Originally, she was born in New York, but she worked for years here in the district, establishing schools and education institutions for African-American children and African-American women, believing that education held the keys for undermining slavery and racism. During her years in D.C., she worked alongside notable figures for justice, such as Harriet Beecher Stowe and Henry Ward Beecher and Frederick Douglass. Minor was shaped by her faith, a, a faith uh, upbringing in the Quaker tradition, uh, believing in the sanctity and dignity of every life, including the lives of African Americans during a time in which dignity was being denied. She worked to see the end of slavery in America and labored to see African Americans gain access to education. And the schools, the school for where we are, this the, the school we are in is named after this champion of racial and educational justice. There are these portraits. Sometimes we take them down, at times we leave them up because uh, we forget. There's not a real, I wish I could say there was an intentionality to it. We just, I didn't take them down today. Uh, <clears throat> you see, this school is part of a long history 
of those who've advocated for justice and for equality and for opportunity. And that old story of Martilla Minor has a new expression in this very school. As this school continues to live into the vision inspired by the school's namesake. But the thing is, educational equity continues to be elusive in this city, including at this very school. Because the enemy is at work just as the Lord is, in a place and among a people. Yet those old, heroic, soul-stirring narratives that were begun in the 1800s, they have lingering effects even to this very day in this location. Because stories shape a place. And stories shape a people that call that place home. Now, another story. Mamie Johnson. Anybody know Mamie Johnson, Peanut? Let me tell you. Mamie was a professional baseball player in the 1950s. Initially, she tried out for the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. If anybody has seen a league of their own, that's what she tried out for. But they denied her because she was black. So... Instead, she joined the nearly all-male Negro Leagues, playing for the Indianapolis Clowns. The name struck me as funny, but that's who she played for. Johnson was just one of three women ever to play in the Negro Leagues. She was the only one to play as pitcher. While she was a professional, she amassed a career record of 33-8. and eight. Mamie Peanut Johnson, she lived right here in this neighborhood. Passed away in 2017. And if you go over to the Rosedale Rec Center uh, and you look at the scoreboard in the corner of the field, it's, na- it's got her name up there. Mamie Peanut Johnson. They, uh, they built the field and they named the ball field after her. And the word on the street is she really wanted to be a baseball field because, well, she played baseball. But <laughs> the thing was, the young people kind of impressed upon her. They came to the, you know, of the community, they came to her and they impressed upon her that what they really wanted was a football field and a soccer field and so she relented and so they named a football field in honor of a professional baseball player that lived in our neighborhood. Uh, After baseball, uh, Johnson worked as a nurse here in D.C. at Sibley Hospital. She would later be inducted into the Negro League Baseball Museum. Mamie Johnson is is a woman who broke the gender barrier and faced down racial barriers in pursuit of her dreams and her passions. Hers is a story that informs the lives and the pursuits and the athletic spirit here in the Rosedale neighborhood. And because stories shape a place and stories shape a people that call that place home. And so even as we play on that field, it informs our living even in this place. Over the past several weeks uh, since Easter, we've been asking this question of how do we live in light of the resurrection? How ought the story that we are in, the story that God has us located in, that the story that is among us and that is around us, how does that story shape us? How do we live into the resurrection? And as we've been exploring this question, we've been exploring it through the filter of our church's values. We've asked, how do we live out the resurrection in our prayer lives? How do we practice resurrection in light of Jesus' radical inclusivity? How does the resurrection inform our values and our work for justice? And today, I want us to consider how the resurrection informs our ministry of presence in the places that we call home, here in Washington, D.C., and throughout the DMV area. And we've been using the broader story of the book of Acts to guide our reflections coming out of Easter. And this week and next, I want us to center on this story that comes out of Acts 17, a passage that finds the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens. 
And, and while Paul is there, he, he engages the philosophers and poets in the center of the city in a place called the Areopagus. This is a location where local philosophers and politicians, where they would gather to discuss the pressing issues of the day. They would talk about topics of, of politics and culture and religion and art and philosophy. And we'll discuss a symbol of this place next week, but for the moment, it's important for you to know that uh, Paul is in this city, and the city has a significant meaning to the Roman and to the Greek world. Athens holds a, a, a romantic a storied and historic center. It's a historied place in the minds of the ancient people. Athens was the center of that known world and had a history that celebrated itself and celebrated those that called that place home. Athens, Athens it wore its history in front of everyone. It displayed its stories through art and architecture and through statues and, and monuments. I don't know if that sounds like any place y'all have ever lived or been in. And Athens told stories to one another through its people and venues like the Areopagus where Paul now finds himself. And we drop uh, in uh, at the halfway point in the story where Paul stands up in the middle of the debates that are going on in Acts 17. And let's look quickly at verse 24. Then God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and on earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul opens by noting the things that he's seen around the city of Athens and, and leading into the area of the Areopagus. And then he turns from what, he's, what he's seen, he turns then to the one that he doesn't see, but that made everything that is seen. He impresses upon the Athenians gathered there that it is God who has made everything, that God is the author and the originator of everything that you see, the originator of everything in the world, and that God is the one who gives life and breath. And then it's like he just can't list everything that he wants to list that God has created. So then he's just like, he made this and that, and well, then he made everything else too. I appreciate that. Sometimes we just run out of words. And what Paul is saying to those gathered there is that God is the one who made all of the places on the earth. Everything that you can see or visit or live in, that those things, they were created by the Almighty. God has, has dominion or authority over them and he has agency over them. And they were created to reflect God's character. Now, when we think of uh, these things that God created, oftentimes we think of more like rural settings, right? When we talk about God's creation, we imagine mountains and hills and meadows and streams and rivers. We think of deer like frolicking in the frolicky places. We imagine like eagles soaring and like trout jumping out of the water. We, we think of nature scenes. But what we can miss in Acts 17 is that Paul isn't channeling like his inner psalmist and telling us like as the deer panteth for it. Like he's not, that's not what he's doing. Paul is surrounded by first century concrete. He's in a major metropolitan area. And at the time of Paul's visit to Athens, the city had a population of almost 300,000 people. Paul is saying that that city and everything in it was made by God. 
He's saying that the neighborhoods, that the, that the communities, the, the buildings, the structures, the parks, the playgrounds, the waterways, the roadways, the roadhouses, the row houses, all that was created and made by God. Our cities are God's handiwork. And the purpose is to reflect God's glory that, that this city, this neighborhood was created by God for a purpose. That the businesses, that the, the, the community centers, the recreation centers, the, the, the ball fields, the water parks, the libraries, that those things were made by God to reflect God's character and God's purposes. However, the enemy is also at work. Even in places of God's creation, the enemy is at work to undermine those places that are intended to reflect God's kingdom and God's character. One of the spiritual practices that we've done uh, over the years at Christ City is the spiritual discipline of naming life and death. We name life, we name the places where we see the Spirit's activity of bringing about renewal and bringing about life, and we name those things. We never want to get out of the practice of naming life. I started, I started this message by naming some life. Seeing y'all get up there and sing your hearts out was amazing with no shame and with, with no reservation for everybody like cheering one another on. That's a, that's a sign, that's a reflection of God's character and God's kingdom. Seeing some of y'all, y'all pictures at the water parks and the splash pads and celebrating the, the, the beauty of the neighborhood and the community, those are signs of life. Seeing kiddos graduating this time of year, signs of life in the community. It's one of the practices that we have. Let us always be alert to the work of the Spirit in our midst. And name it. And we've just named death, have we not? Signs of death, we named what took place in Buffalo and what took place in Laguna Hills. But we could also name the over 250 uh, homicides that have been happening here in Washington, D.C. over the past year. We could name the death. We name it and we lament it and we work against it and we pray against it and we stand in solidarity with those that are affected by it. We name the death. Where have I seen signs of life and where am I seeing signs of death and praying for that? Paul is oppressing upon the Athenians and to us the truth that God is the author of the places that we call home. And as it was in Athens, it is true here as well. Paul continues to turn our attention and his attention not only to the place then, but then he turns it to the people that live in that place. Verse 26. From one humanity, from one man, from one humanity, he made all the nations. And nations not like nation states, but ethnicities and peoples and people groups. He made everybody that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history. And the boundaries of the lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Now, this is a rich and, and a meaning-filled set of statements. But before we unpack what Paul is saying, I want to take a minute to address what he's not saying here. Paul is not giving license to colonization or empire building. Neither is he saying that oppression or marginalization or enslavement are given some kind of immunity or that those are activities in keeping with God's character and God's kingdom. It is always a misuse of God's word to justify behaviors that are contrary to God's character. Let me say that again. It is always a misuse of God's word 
to use that word to justify behaviors that are contrary to God's character. You cannot steal someone's land and leave them destitute and then flippantly reply with Paul's words. Well, I guess God appointed the times and the places where you're supposed to live. What you are doing is oppressing an image bearer of God by using God's words to justify that. And that's called blasphemy. That would be not only stripping the dignity from one created in God's image, but it would also be a desecration of God's words and your justification of that act. Now, church, get me going up here. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul is doing, what he is saying to us, is that God cares about where you live, okay? God cares about where you live, and God has a redemptive purpose for where you are living. When it comes to where we live, we have a measure of agency in deciding where we live, but what Paul wants us to know is that there is a divine purpose for our living and where we live. God wants to use you right where you are and right where you live. And the reason is because God is at work where you live. God is at work in your apartment building and on your block and in your neighborhood and in the lives of those that are around you and that call your neighborhood home. God is at work and God is inviting you to join him in that work in your neighborhood. There is no place where God is not working. There are no abandoned places or abandoned people where the Lord of heaven and earth is absent. Though there may be places where the cities abandon them. And there may be places where developers have abandoned them. There is no place that God has abandoned. There may be places where the economics of justice seem, isol- seem marginalized. And in its place are economics of exploitation. But there are no places that God has abandoned. God is at work in all places. And among all people to bring about his purposes for the world. And God is inviting us to join him in that work. And what is that work? Paul clarifies it in verse 27. God did this so that they would seek him. So that they would reach out to him. And so that they would find him. And that they would know that God is not far from any of us. He says it. God wants you to help others in their seeking and in their reaching and in their finding. And God wants to use you to say to those around you, God is not far from you. Do you hear echoes of of what Martilla was saying? God's not far. There's no place that has been abandoned. Do you hear echoes of what Mamie Johnson lived into of saying there's no places that have been abandoned? Women that pointed those around them and even us to the truth that injustice and racism and broken systems and sinful structures, that those things don't have the last word in a life or in a place or among a people. That another world is possible and that God is not far from any of us. This is why we engage in the work of advocating for affordable housing. Though housing prices in this country, they may ascribe value to a house, they don't ascribe value to a person. Okay, everyone deserves dignity and care because they are image bearers of the almighty. But we engage in this work, not from a distance, but as neighbors who care for our neighborhood, as those who are inter- whose lives are intertwined with the community. And we stand against those that might use the built environment to communicate to us that some lives matter more than others. 
That's why we serve along our neighbors here at Minor Mutual Aid. That's why we help our new neighbors who have arrived from Afghanistan. Because what Paul is saying is that, that the reason that you live where you live is so that you may participate in God's work in that place. God has brought you to this place and in this moment of history for a reason. And that reason is to be a sign and a foretaste of his coming kingdom. And before we finish the time I've got left, I want to address a few implications of what Paul is saying on our 21st century American lives. I want to help tease out some specific implications on our lives. And I want to be nuanced here uh, because I know that we don't all come into this conversation uh, on the same footing, frankly. Some of us come into this conversation with less privilege when it comes to where we live. Some of us live where we live because it's where we can live. Or it's where we have to live. And we don't feel like we have a whole lot of say in the matter of where we live. Either because of income or circumstances or situations. We live in places maybe that we'd rather not. But it's where we are. And the truth is it can sometimes feel like an abandoned place. There's a few things I want to say about that. First, I want you to know that the Lord sees you. Lord has not lost sight of your circumstance. He knows you're going out and you're going in. He hears your prayers for a better situation. You are not shouting in the dark, but you are praying to a God whose eye is on the sparrow and he watches you. Second thing I want to say is that the Lord identifies with you. Jesus himself, commenting on his own living situation, said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. Jesus knows what it's like to live and to be in an unhoused situation. He knows what it is to live in a place that isn't his first or second or third choice. Jesus knows what it is to live in an incarcerated situation. And saints, what I want you to know is that the Lord identifies with you. The third thing to say is that your church family is with you. There's no shame or judgment in where you live or how you live. We all kind of, I know we kind of walk into this room. I'm going to be honest. I got a new pair of shoes on, yo. And I've noted none of y'all said nothing about them either. It's all right. Thank you. I received that. It's from the Lord. We all kind of walk in this room, kind of, you know, put together a little bit, right? But the truth is, is that um, there are those in this room that have experienced homelessness. There's uh, those of us in this room that have experienced incarceration, either our own or that of a loved one or loved ones. There's those of us in this room that have lived in places that have felt absolutely abandoned. Your church community is with you. And we affirm you. And if you need help, If you need help securing housing or different housing, we want to help. We're going to walk with you from here to there. But the last thing that I want to say to you, though, is that God wants to use you right where you are. 
God wants to use you in whatever circumstance you find yourself living in, even if it's not your design. God can use you and wants to. And to impact those that are right around you to help them reach and know and remember that God is not far from them. Now, for those of us that are more proximate to privilege, and currently we have a bit more say and more agency over where we live, there's a few things that I want to remind us of. And it's that where we live, it's not primarily about us or about our convenience nor the benefits that a place bestows upon us. Where we're living isn't primarily about our property values or walkability or proximity to like cafes and restaurants or its location in select schools. That where we live is primarily about what God is doing in us and what God wants to do through us as we live in that place. There are neighbors in, in a neighborhood where God is at work right around you. And your participation in that neighborhood and those neighbors, it has to be rooted in God's activity there, not in that area's economic viability with which you view that place. Be careful of us taking our housing decisions and baptizing them. Let us not be consumers of a community, benefiting from a place's amenities that best fit our own tastes and preferences and lifestyle choices. Rather, let us follow in the footsteps of a Savior who located himself in a place and among a people who identified with the aches and the longings and the pain of a place and a people so that he might bring about renewal in that place. Let us be those people and marked in those ways. I know some of you, you're here for a short time, and you're thinking, man, look, that sounds great, but I'm only here for like a summer, a couple years, months, whatever. Hey, praise God. We praise God for you. We're glad that you're here. And your invitation this morning is to practice resurrection by loving a people. Your invitation is to practice presence over consumerism by loving a place and a people. And consider how you can invest in a place and to people, how you can learn the stories of a place and love a geography and name death and name life and pray daily for where you are so that when you move to whatever is your next place, you will be better practiced at helping those in that place seek and reach and love the Lord, that you will be better skilled at helping neighbors know that the Lord is not far from them. At Christ City, we, we, we care We've been here almost nine years. We care about this geography. We care about this cluster of neighborhoods that surround minor elementary school. We, we care about H Street and, and Trinidad and Benning Road and Capitol Hill and Rosedale and Noma. It's, it's, it's been our center of gravity for almost a decade and, and will be so long as the Lord has us here. This is the only place that we care about. It's in the only neighborhood, set of neighborhoods that we care about care about neighborhoods east of the river. We care about Anacostia and Fairlawn, Hillcrest. We care about places in northern Virginia. We care places, faraway places like Hyattsville. <laughs> but there can be a tension in that that is common to this age, that we want to be limitless. We want to be everywhere all at once and in no place in particular. But our value of presence and our value of incarnating our lives and our ministry in a particular place, it calls us to be bound to a finite geography and to a limited number of people for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the world and for the sake of our own souls. 
And as a church, as, as the reach of Christ City moves beyond this cluster of neighborhoods that originally gave birth to this church, my prayer is that that same spirit of presence animates the lives of those that live east of the Anacostia and west of the Potomac, and those of you that live in gorgeous Prince George's County, and those of you that live in Montgomery County, and that you would care for your neighbors there, and that you would locate the, the pain of that community, and that you would stand in solidarity with it, and the things that we practice corporately in this neighborhood, that you would animate them in the neighborhoods that you call home. We'll see you on Sunday. And then we'll celebrate you through the week as you embody God's kingdom in those places that you call home for the sake of God's glory. Because there are those that are right around you that need to know that God is not far from them. So care for the neighbors there. Point your neighbors towards the hope that's found in Jesus and that you would be a chaplain to those in the neighborhood and that you would join with God's work in that place. Practice this value in this ministry of presence. Not on your own strength, because Jesus displayed it first to us. That's our hope. That's our prayer for this neighborhood and all of the neighborhoods represented in all of the lives in this place. Let me pray for us.